Hi guys and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. Today we have a guest that we have not seen around in a long time, Mr. Yongjin. Hey. Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think you always joke that every time we meet the market crashes. Yep, that's true. So fingers true. crossed that nothing is going to happen immediately this time. But I think the last few times that we met, is it was always like some crazy thing that was happening in the market that made you like super stressed out. <laughs> yeah. But it's good to see you back. Yep. Thanks for inviting me. The last time when we spoke was Q3 of last year, 2022, and yep. we talked about the crypto winter. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how the markets have moved um, since then. Yeah. So the market is obviously recovering quite fast um, from the really the winter time that happened after FTX collapsed uh, in Q3 last year. Uh, but not just that, I think the the market overall, like even the equities markets, they tanked a lot last year, but they recovered quite a bit this year. And even with the high interest rate, I think people somehow got some confidence, like since like a, a few weeks ago. So it's quite interesting to see that both equities and crypto and risky assets are rallying. Mm -hmm. there, there are many factors that attribute to this strong market. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, some regulatory uh, positive news, um, maybe interest rates already picked out in in United States, and maybe same for Europe. So people are expecting that you know financial conditions will ease a bit mm. uh, compared to 2022. Mm -hmm. Personally, think that it's still a bit premature to assume that this rally can continue for a long time, because we're still um, at a quite high interest rate standard. I think it's um, still a bit too early to say that, hey, the market winter is over. So when you say too early, like what are, you know, are you kind of like basing it that off like certain data points that you track? So looking back, like long-term macroeconomic patterns. So usually the economic slowdown starts after 12 to 18 months from the first peak of the interest rate. So for example, like United States uh, raised the interest rate to 5.5% about four months ago. So maybe we have maybe eight to maybe roughly 10 months to confirm whether the economy can survive this high rate mm. or we'll see some slowdowns in the economy and then eventually the asset price will go down together. Mm. So I think that's why historically speaking, it's maybe too early to say anything mm. yet. Got it. The topic that we're talking about today is in general, like what's the 2024 outlook? And like you said, like you know, because we don't actually have a crystal ball, nobody can can actually say for sure what's mm -hmm. going to happen. But you know, definitely, I think like you know, the outlook of twenty twenty four seems to be more negative than positive. That's uh, I think that's general consensus. Mm. Like many uh, economists know, already know that this is a pattern that usually, like after like a year or a year and a half, and uh, since the late hike stopped. It's likely to see a slowdown in the economy. So maybe the, that's why people are waiting for, maybe there might be some recessionary movements in the market. But on the flip side, you know, still like there are a lot of people saying that this time is different rhetoric as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's so much money uh, distributed through QEs and, you know, previous government uh, subsidies um, through the pandemic time. So it's still a bit confusing, even to me. Like I, I, I personally don't think... It's going to be very strong. But at the same time, is it going to tank? I don't know. I'm not so confident on that view either. But given that you are very much data-driven and, you know, you have the benefit of looking across, like, what history has told us, right? So you, of all people, would know that when we talk about this time is different. It's hardly different, is it? 
Yeah. So, but even very like experienced economist, it's really, really hard to predict the economic path. So mm. uh, that's why the you know the Federal Reserve and many other central banks have to you know watch the data for longer to confirm that you know it's actually going this way or the other. And it's same for me. Like I. I mean, our firm, like uh, like Presto Labs, we're doing quant trading. Mm. Um, so we're like, we know how to handle those data to extract the patterns and then deploy the strategies based on that. But we're doing so on relatively short-term predictions. Like we're predicting like hourly predictions or like uh, maybe at most few days. Mm. Uh, whereas those macroeconomic trends, you have to watch for much longer data and then the patterns are happening much slower. Mm. Um so yeah, that's why it's so difficult for me to predict mm. exactly what's going to happen for next year. So let's say we're not looking for a prediction per se, but then let's mm -hmm. talk about the different like headwinds and tailwinds that's going to play out, right? I think a lot of people are often talking about the geopolitical tensions, there's of course the ongoing wars. Um, China obviously plays a very big part in it. So like in, in your headspace, like, what do you think are the top three like headwinds and tailwinds? Yeah, so geopolitical risk, like, you know, there's there are already two ongoing wars, major wars, one in Ukraine, one in the Middle East. And there's another related event, like, that can potentially happen in China and Taiwan. And then, like, trade war is still ongoing, not resolved. So there are many, like, uh, headwinds, high interest rates and high inflation rates. So those are the major, like, headwinds um, that we have. On the, on the flip side, throughout the, you know, pandemic area, like, I think a lot of people, like, their perception changed. So, like, they know that whenever there's a huge macroeconomic shock, the government will help us. Mm. Yeah, they will, they'll save the market. I mean, it's, it's my personal opinion, but I think people's perception is dramatically changed. So people are so into buy-the-dip type of trading patterns. Mm. So whenever they see the clue, let's say, oh, interest rates stopped going up and it's likely go to go down. Well, no one said that publicly yet, but people just assume that and then they just buy. Mm. They're just eager to find reasons to buy and jump into the capital market. Mm. I think that's one change that I observed in the market. And if you look at like US equities markets, you, you can see that like this year, the market recovered like about 50%. That's incredibly high mm. recovery. But most of the gains are focused on the top seven stocks. Yeah. yeah, they even call it like Magnificent 7 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that means it's not rational. It's very psychological because it's not true that only seven companies are doing a good job. There are many others that are doing a very great job, even with this hard time. But only seven stocks got most of the money from mm -hmm. retails and, and even institutionals. So I think the investment pattern has been a bit changed. And that's another like factor that attribute to, yeah. Which are these top seven? I mean, NVIDIA is definitely one of them. Yeah, like those ones? big techs like Google, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, mm. Tesla for sure, mm. Meta, and, and, and so on. Yeah, mm. Netflix. Mm. Yeah, so like the common things are they have their tech-driven companies and they have, their influence is over like global market. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I remember um podcast where they invited Damodaran, right? And he was just talking about, you know, what has happened in, in this year. And he was saying that, yes, you know, if you look at the, the labor market, the, the, the job market is extremely terrible. Like you just 
hear about layoffs all the time. But if you think about the actual performance of companies, like their revenues haven't been impacted that much, even though they were laying off like significant portions of their stuff. So a lot of it was actually in terms of like cutting fat. Yep. Not much impact in terms of revenue. And I think that was, I mean, for me, that was like so interesting, right? Because you're kind of coming off a very frothy period of like crazy valuations for tech, which still are there today. But, you know, there's a lot of excess in terms of the, the staffing. I think it's partially also because it's not been long enough time since we pumped the money into the economy, like both uh, central banks and then governments uh, provide a ton of subsidies. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the numbers are incorrect, but uh, I remember that like during the, the middle of the pandemic time, I heard that there are like more than $1 trillion in U.S. retail's pocket mm. thanks to the government subsidies and so much benefits and, and, and like health aid. Like those packages, like every week we have new packages. That's why, you know, the people still have money to go shopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why those big tech earnings are still remaining quite strong. Mm. So it's taking some time to see the shortage of cash from the uh, like consumer's pocket, I would say. Mm. Then they'll impact the earnings and then they'll like cause more, you know, layoffs and so on. And that's actually the beginning of the recessionary spiral, right? So... Mm. I still think it's a it's a timing issue. So historically, what has been the average like lead up time to that? Yeah, because so, you're saying it's too short, right? Yeah. So like I mentioned, it's usually like twelve to eighteen months um, from the the peak of the interest rate. So I think I mean it's mark again it's market consensus, but people saying that U.S. interest rate already picked out, they already happened four or five months ago. So that means we still have about six to 12 months to see um, the real impact. Mm. Uh, and it again, that also depends on how much money already being distributed. So we know that how much the packages were back in like, you know, 2021. So that's huge amounts. So we know that there's so much extra cash, like not just on investors' hands, but also consumers' pocket. And then it will probably take longer than people would expect mm. to see the recession. So you think in this time it will be actually take longer than twelve to eighteen months for? I think that's it possible. That's why there is uh, still enough market force to boost the stock price high, even with this high yield conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Often when people think about like downturns, right? Um. Then usually you have maybe some people, the value investors, they come in and talk about the more resilient industries. Do you have a perspective on that? I think luxury is an extra spending type of thing. Like, let's say, leisure. Those are the sectors where, where you're going to get hit most. Mm. And then also, like, growth companies. Like, you know, like, some companies uh, working on AI, like, super high-tech. You need, like, ton of investment. Like, SpaceX, for example, they're going to Mars. Mm-hmm. So those type of, like growth and luxury and extra spending type, they'll probably get hit most. Mm. But like critical spending, like say transportation, you have to spend gas to run the, you know, to drive. Mm. Those sectors will survive longer and and resilient, I think. But I think the definition of the core spending is also changing. Like for Mm. example, like Netflix watching, it's quite critical, right? I mean, you watch, right? Everyone does. Without YouTube, can you survive? Mm. Yeah, so those are becoming more and more like critical spending. Mm-hmm. And that's why those big techs are surviving quite well. Mm. Like you cannot cut off your YouTube. Let's say you can afford $10, right? Even at for everyone, almost everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd rather skip one meal and watch YouTube for one month mm. without ads. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I think the consuming pattern also changed, and then that's actually another positive factors for the big techs. I mean, there are different indexes, right? There's like what's that the lipstick index, where you're basically the main premise is that women sort of scaled back on the larger item luxury purchases, but then they still could afford to buy like lipsticks because it's like so small in terms of like absolute value, but then it gives them like some feeling of luxury so even when you talked about netflix like you said like if you like ten dollars a month twenty dollars a month like for them it's like oh you know they get so much more value out of it but then maybe they're gonna scale back on i don't know drama performances like live shows mm-hmm. maybe eating out i think you raise a good point of you know like what we consider essential spend has actually changed yeah that's why i sometimes like question to I mean, I'm not an economist, so mm. maybe my question is a bit awkward, but CPI definition, like how do you define your spending? Because it's changing. Like, do you have to include Google, YouTube, <laughs> oh, like, wasn't premium? Included in the basket, yeah, like right? you have to include those like core spending on IP services uh, because you have to buy, most likely, like if you're an iPhone user, they're very loyal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they tend to buy it, whatever price it is. Mm. So they must be in the CPI index some somehow yes and then same for like microsoft office you have to use it like you have to subscribe the service and same for like some music services subscribing and you need to use amazon mm-hmm. um yeah so those like core subscription fees i'm not sure they're like how timely uh the, the federal reserve is factored those spending into the cpi indexes mm. and what's the core like definition of core spending i don't know it's changing so fast and definition of the core spending for especially for young generation is quite different from the older guys. Mm. So interesting. I mean yeah. definitely that online entertainment bit is a very significant aspect, right? Even if you look at the spend on gaming or even not even just spend or just watch time, there's just so much attention in yep. that space, right? Like you said, like, you know, entertainment, you know, it would be perceived as non core, like non essential, but it actually is very much factored into everybody's um budget. Yep. I mean, even in one of our previous podcasts where where um, he was looking at the split of children's spend from the parental allowance, 40% of it is on entertainment, mm. which is significant. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess the rest is like food and travel, but 40%, yeah. you're almost coming to like half. So it's, like, it's a good point anyway. It's like yeah. a lot of it, entertainment, Netflix. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to imagine a world where you kind of like took out all this like entertainment and see what happens. Yeah, like gamings, for example. Like game might be considered as an extra or an unnecessary spending for some people mm. or maybe like mainstream people. But young generations, it's it's core for the life. You need you need gaming, right? Mm. Um, and same for like entertainment, lasers, and, and like those big tech services. Yeah. Got it. So aside from, um, I guess, like industries and recognizing that there has been a fundamental shift in how humans consume, how are you thinking about geographies? I think so far U.S. economy has been strong, whereas others are like getting slow, especially in China. Um, mm-hmm. China had quite high level of you know corporate and, and individual debt level. We're seeing that some of the real estate companies are in trouble in China. So I think they're going to go through some debt restructuring mm-hmm. uh, within China. So, yeah, they will probably see quite slow in CPI. Actually, they see sometimes negative CPIs. So it's quite interesting. Like all other worlds are experiencing quite high CPIs. Mm. But maybe that's due to the uh, fact that, you know, they're importing Russian goods. 
mm-hmm. without much, you know, issues. They can import like Russian oils, for example. Mm. Um, I don't know, like I don't know the clear reason, but they're somehow going very different path. And Europe, like the fundamentals are weaker than U.S. I guess the CPI impact was, you know, heavier than the U.S. Mm. because you know because of the war. Mm. So they have more impact. Um, so yeah, I mean, depending on what region you're in, so you see the different strength in the economy right mm. now. Got it. Yeah. So, so my question to you is like, what can retail investors do in such an such uncertain and sometimes emotionally charged times? Yeah. So, uh, when we recorded uh, the last session, it was like in the middle of the winter, crypto winter, right? Mm. So at the time, BTC was about like twenty thousand. Everyone was talking about bad things about crypto. And all of a sudden, after one year, like people are now talking about some like bright future, mm-hmm. uh, ETFs will imp- get improved, uh, approved, and and like some so many like hypes are happening already. Um, so I think it's it's still very important for the retails to maintain <laughs> the opposite way of mm. what majority of people are thinking. Mm. Um, so like uh, back in twenty twenty two. Uh, right after FTX collapsed, a lot of people are dumping. Like, oh, I, I cannot trust any exchange. They're even questioning Tether, even questioning CZ, Binance. Like, every, I can like I heard a lot of stories that so many people are blaming like the whole industry, and then there's no good player. I'm 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 done. I'm leaving. Like, mm. But that's actually the bottom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was fifteen thousand. Um, so yeah, I mean, try to avoid those emotional. And very seasonal reactions on the market. I think that's one of the key things you have to in, my, in your mind. What do you think are some good mental frameworks that one can deploy? Because it is so easy to go with the crowd when everybody's fearful. It takes a certain amount of courage to go against the green. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, going the other way that majority of people would would do is itself is very hard because if it's not hard then a lot of people would de- behave that way then that becomes another mainstream uh, that's why only a uh, few percentage of people can make a successful investment and they can be a only very very few can be a long-term successful successful investors but it's still very important to not follow those you know FOMO FUD like those maniac moves like mm. both ways not just downside or upside mm. But yeah, it's it's not easy. I, I, I myself, as a personal trader, I, I'm not very good at it. Mm. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, for l- large amounts of investment, I try to do with very low leverages because if it's high leverage, your patience is running out. It's hard to sleep at yeah, night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I usually tell my friends, there is a test. Like if you sleep peacefully without looking at the chart for a week, mm-hmm. then you're making an investment. Otherwise, you're doing a gambling. Mm. Or like just short-term trading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think as a retail trader, you have to do investment. So you have to lower the leverage ratio and you have to do it with the pocket money that you don't need even need it for in maybe next two, three years. Mm. But a lot of people, fulfilling that condition is already very tough. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it's one of the, the most important fact, factor that you have to have to make a successful investment. You have to be patient and you have to stay resilient against any market volatility. Mm. Yeah. So we talk about, as in the two guardrails, right? The first one is like you're saying that you need to give yourself enough of a time frame and you must be okay with not having access to that. 
Yeah. So, for example, like not some, needing liquidity. Some for people, the like some of my friends, back in 2021, when everyone was in manic mood,、mm-hmm. <laughs> they told me like, "Hey, Youngjin, I'm gonna use this money next year for purchasing a house, but I want to still make a double." Yeah. <laughs> so、mm-hmm. basically, basically, this guy wanted to buy two houses instead of one house, for、mm. example.、Yeah. Mm. So that's an example of bad investment because you have a time pressure. You have you must sell your whatever you buy now within one year, most likely earlier than that because you know you have to make a deposit, you have to plan it out. So that behavior, like you're putting yourself in a in a very tough position that you must sell,、mm. um, no matter what the price is.、Yeah. So even if it goes too low, it means you have to hold, you have to sell because you have to pay for your house.、Mm. And then like short term trading, for example, like you buy now and you buy with. Like 10x leverage, and then you keep checking your chart for the next two hours, three hours. You cannot focus on your work. So most、mm. of the investment to make it successful, you shouldn't look at the market too often. It makes you more, how do I say, eager to trade, and that means you're likely to make more mistakes.、Mm. And you're paying more commissions, more market impact.、Mm. Yeah. So it's like a like a negative cycle.、Mm. Yeah. So two two parts. So, but obviously, like greed is a very real emotion, especially when it comes to investing. And 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 we've certainly seen like the people who are most greedy, they also kind of like swing all the way、uh-huh. the other way to like being the most like fearful. So I I I I, I get it from what you say. It's sort of like to try to remain like as calm as possible, and also like. But to, to do that, you have to use the side money that you don't need it for next two three years.、Mm. So, at least you can talk to yourself like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it will come back. So、mm. let's say I buy now, and then stock tanked. Usually, recessionary drawdown recovers within two three years, unless it's really really like big one like. Uh, financial crisis and back in two thousand eight, or、mm. like Great Depression, like earlier days, like hundred、mm. years ago. Yeah, those are very very exceptional ones. But even with that, like if you have, if you're investing with your side money, your life will at least be as calm as before.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's very important to invest with the side money and invest with the long term horizon.、Mm. So like. You know, like people often talk about that split, right? Of how much you put in bonds, cash type instruments versus equities versus、mm-hmm. the more risky assets. What is your own split? I think it's、um, always good to have some portion of cash because you never know what's going to happen. But at the same time, looking at the government spending, maybe it's not too safe to hold too much cash.、Mm. Yeah. So I'll say maybe thirty percent cash,、mm. and maybe some portion to a very large cap, very stable index, and some portion goes to crypto. <laughs> That's my personal opinion, by the way. Yeah. <laughs>、um, yeah, because crypto is potentially a good hedge against、uh, fiat devalue. Like for、mm. example, if you hold Bitcoin and Ethereum, like Ethereum、uh, inflation ratio is quite low, and sometimes it's deflationary because you know, as people、uh, transfer more Ethereum,、uh, the more Ethereum will be burned on on mainnet, so、mm. the total supply will actually goes down. So it's actually good hedge against the fiat printing. And if you look at the forecast on government spending on all major developed countries, it's really quite scary. So in the long run, they mean it means they're going to keep printing. They have to print. More money. That means you have to hold some quality assets、mm-hmm. against、uh, fiat devaluation. But going back to your split, because you were saying thirty percent cash, I would assume that the remaining seventy percent. I think that majority of that will still be in large cap 
versus crypto? I think considering the higher volatility in, in crypto, for example, like stock VIX today is 15 mm-hmm. for S&P and uh, Bitcoin, whereas it's around 50 percent mm. so it's about roughly saying it's three times more volatile mm. than than s&p so my recommendation is maybe maybe like three to one mm-hmm. split among the quality assets like let's say large cap stocks and then like uh, and one on the crypto mm. maybe that's I, I don't know it's not mathematical solution mm. uh, but roughly speaking yeah of course you have to hold more stocks than crypto for normal people uh, whereas I'm not. I mean, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I was just going to say. On the, yeah, I'm more on the pro crypto side. Mm. But my opinion is skewed. So for normal like people, like normal investor, uh, that's the ratio that I would recommend. Like more volatile assets, you must hold less mm-hmm. unless you have a very strong thesis. Mm. Yeah. And with regards to 30% cash, I mean, I have two questions there. The first one is, have you always held like 30% cash given the changing times? That's the first question. And the second thing is, I think sometimes people don't really think about like 30% cash because your 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 own personal assets, I mean, 30% of like a million versus 30% of 50 million is quite different. Um, and and maybe the, the better metric would be what would be one or two years of like living expenses if everything went to shit and I, I had cash, <laughs> right? Yeah, but it's... It's good to have some reserve cash to counter volatile markets. So if, you know, like you never know that market tanks all of a sudden, like 30, 40%, that you have to have some money to buy back, mm. like rebalancing. So mm. I still recommend to hold cash at least to 20, 30% of, of it. Even though its value is going down, you still need it. That's why like central bank wants to keep down the inflation rate like around 2% because unless, if it goes too high mm. and and they know that every people have to hold some ratio of, you know, assets in cash. That's actually quite bad for everyone, right? Mm. You you know that this amount of cash is devaluing, yeah, like every single day. But at the same time, you must hold it to counter the volatility. Mm. But yeah, the short term yields is quite good. Like for example, like U.S. dollar gives you, even with some markups. Um, you can easily find like 4%, 4.5%, you know, yield generating, you know, deposit options easily mm-hmm. for the US dollar. Maybe it's lower in Singapore dollar, but yeah, you can find some yields for the cash. So don't think that it's, uh, you're losing opportunity by holding cash. Mm. Uh, I think it's not. You're, there's a hidden benefits. Mm. Yeah. When there is a volatility, then you can actually balance your portfolio. Mm. Got if it. you don't have cash, you cannot buy back. Yes. Yep. That's a, that's a good point that often gets um, overlooked. Um, so going to 2024, what are your personal moves when it comes to your own investment portfolio? Not talking about Presto Labs. Um, I still think that we will need to wait another six months or, mm-hmm. or nine months to determine whether we're heading to the recessionary cycle or there's no cycle. I mean, th- there's no recession and w- the market will just go up. Mm-hmm. I think it's still too early to decide. So I'll just wait with um, some short, short-term short bond holdings, keep generating yields through hold, by holding cash, mm. um, but stay slightly conservative until we see more clear signs on the economy. I think, and, that's, I think that's the right strategy. And is it the same approach for Presto? We're a bit different situations because, you know, we're, as an agro trading firm, um, we have to keep deploying our cash, our capital, 
for trading activities. Mm. Um, so we internally allocate our assets uh, into different sectors of trading. Like you know, some goes to options trading, some goes to long term like strategies, some goes to high frequency strategies. Uh, that's what we're doing, but we are trying to fully utilize the capital yeah. as much as we can because we're like in a different position. Yes, versus yeah. if it's talking about your own, you don't have to actively keep making sure that it's actively deployed at any one point in no, time. No, right? I, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, mm. I, would, I, would, I would hold and see mm -hmm. uh, and then until I get the clear idea. Yeah, I mean, that's a good perspective, I think, because like we're saying like six months to nine months from now, we'll see and then we'll, we'll have a chat here again to see how, <laughs> how markets have panned out. Okay. And we definitely would have to check as to whether or not the markets have crashed today. But as of, you know, what we see, no news coming in on any market crashing. So at least that's a good thing. Yep. Remember that back in 2022, <laughs> I said that you buy Bitcoin at $20,000. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, hopefully I'm right again for the next session. Cool. <laughs> like, yeah, it's always it's always good to have the benefit of hindsight so let's we'll, we'll, we'll reconvene in six to nine months okay. to see how everything made, has played out I made out. my words okay yeah <laughs> but thank you so much Yongjin for coming on thank you it's good seeing you thank yeah. you thank you bye many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in this has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it if you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.